It is another exciting opportunity that we at the Pippin Congregation have to assemble this day. And certainly the membership are delighted to be here. And also the visitors that have come our way for you, we also are very thankful. And we trust that each of us may be able to give greater appreciation to the things of godliness in result of our being able to meet this morning. As you have already heard, as Brother Roger made those announcements, certainly a bit of a unique day in the sense that rather than a 5.30 meeting today, as per the usual, we'll meet at 2 o'clock for an afternoon of singing. Please uh, keep that open on your calendar. Come back and be with us at the 2 o'clock hour. As we have many visitors with us from surrounding congregations, we'll be able to devote a time of lifting our voices together in beautiful melody and harmony to praise our God in heaven. As we sing with the Spirit and as we sing with the understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. In addition, keep to in mind the thought of that meeting at McClellan Avenue this week. As you continue to pray for that and its successfulness, certainly a very momentous occasion for that congregation as they put into place a new building after the fire that uh, took, took, that destroyed the other one some, some months ago now. Certainly as we're happy to be a part of that activity with them, we'll be meeting with them on Wednesday evening at, at the 7 o'clock hour. At this particular time this morning, might I invite each of us to give thought for the next few moments to a lesson entitled, His Name, Emmanuel. As Brother Belcher read for us a moment ago from Matthew chapter 1, we'll be using that as the text for our consideration this morning. As we give some thought to these introductory comments, I'm not sure what's happening to the button today, but hopefully I can make that work properly for at least the next, oh, 25 minutes to a half an hour. His name, Emmanuel. The very thought of the word name and the considerations that go with it is a very compelling and rather profound matter. So often in the Word of God, name is in fact so significant that God in fact changed various names on certain occasions. There was that rather amazing consideration when Abram's name was changed to Abraham as recorded for us in the book of Genesis. There was that occasion when Sarai's name was changed to Sarah, as again we find record of in Genesis 18 as well as chapter 21. We notice that that man known as Saul had his name changed to Paul as recorded in Acts 13. There was that occurrence when Jacob was known as Israel in Genesis 32. All along those occasions we find that name was so significant that God designated it and that he had a special occurrences of it. Similar matters can be referenced with respect to the Son of God himself. How many descriptive words, how many descriptive phrases and names are used to refer to Jesus in the sacred text? There are dozens of them. Some have even recorded the number as well into the hundreds. In Isaiah 9 verse 6, we have several of them found in one location. On that particular reference, we find the prophet Isaiah, as he was directed by the Holy Spirit, he made this statement. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Virtually a half dozen of those names given in one verse. All of them carried with it a great meaning a powerful view of what the one would be that government would in fact be on his shoulder. 
when we come to the New Testament, a whole host of other descriptions that remind us on so many occasions about the significance of the Christ. Did He Himself not say, I am the bread of life in John 6, 35? Two chapters later, didn't He say in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world? Six chapters later, did He not say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Every single name then has an element of significance in that it points us to an attribute of the, the greatness of the Christ, the role that He occupied, and of course, how dependent we are upon Him. It is with that thought in mind, might I invite us to look at this very text that was read earlier. Matthew 1, verses 21 to 23. There is yet another reference provided here, and let's devote the time of our study today to a reflection of not only that passage, but the Old Testament view that in fact casts a spotlight upon it. It is with that in mind that might I ask us first of all to give thought to the following. The setting of the text. As Brother Belcher began his reading, he pointed us to a few of the thoughts concerning its context. Might we, in fact, not only do an attempt at the same, but to strive to appreciate thoroughly and fully the marvelous setting in which this wonderful passage is found. The book of Matthew has, of course, an element of uniqueness to it, as all the New Testament books do. One of the attributes of its uniqueness is the centrality of the initial class to whom it was written. Matthew, it seems, was so powerfully written to convince those of a Jewish background that Jesus was the one to whom they were looking forward to, that Jesus was the one that they recognized as the coming Messiah. So often, Matthew quotes the Old Testament. He does so by, in fact, saying, "...as was written in the prophet, or for saith the prophet." Some have recorded well over a hundred references in Matthew alone to his direct quotation of or his allusion to something that happened in the Old Testament. Since Jews had the sacred scriptures read to them every Sabbath, and they often, of course, in their families read it much more often than that, they were familiar with those prophecies. They understood what they predicted concerning a coming Messiah. And they understood the nature of His kingdom Matthew, through 28 chapters, convinces these of Jewish background, here is the one that you were looking forward to. This one, namely Jesus, does fulfill those prophecies. And His kingdom, known as the church, does fulfill all of them as well. As the book of Matthew serves in that role, the very first chapter begins with a remarkable reference to the Lord's genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, the very first book in the New Testament, very first chapter of that first book, we have a reference to the fact that Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, and on down through 42 generations until ultimately he begat one named Jesus. Jesus is traced immediately back to Abraham, and He does so through David. He does so through the other well-known Old Testament figures. To a Jew, that of course was a very meaningful matter, but it ought to be meaningful for each of us too. Knowing then that that Old Testament, in fact, was a lens through which we can appreciate the coming of one, and He did come through the very people that God said that He would come through, and He came in exactly the time frame that God said He would come. 
when you notice that these generations and their names are listed. Might we recognize that even until this day, it stands as one element of strong proof there was a man named Jesus. Isn't it true today that in, in order to learn about an individual and in order to gain a degree of appreciation of him, one of the things you can do is learn about that person's genealogy. Who was his father and his mother? Who were his grandparents? Who were his great-grandparents? Might we be quick to say that if you can trace that person's genealogy back through a few hundred years, doesn't it give you a great sense of the nature of that person's family? And doesn't it give you a great sense as to this person is a real human being? We have before us the absolute listing of the genealogy of Jesus back through not just a few hundred years, but all the way back to Abraham, spanning 2,000 years and then some. Maybe as we give thought to these genealogies, they should always remind us, God orchestrated the affairs of history with a view of bringing into it the one to which everyone ought to be looking. Today our eyes ought still to be focused on this one who was called Jesus. As you can see furthermore on this slide, after listing that genealogy in verse 18, Matthew then has these words for our consideration. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as His mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph being her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted, is God with us. In highlighted feature, these are some of the factors that appear in that text. We encounter Joseph, as well as the lady to whom he was espoused, namely Mary. That word espoused means that they were betrothed, that was a stronger idea than our modern-day engagement. In that ancient era, when a man and woman made that determination to, to become as one, to become married, it occurred in stages that was slightly different than our modern marriage ceremony. At this point, the two of them had not begun to live together. They had not become to that degree of united character. But they were a bit stronger than engaged. The matter of their marriage was basically a foregone conclusion. But we do find something amazing in verse 18. Even though they had not begun to live together and had not enjoyed conjugal relations in that matter, we notice that she was found to be pregnant. Mary, though having never known a man in that sexual way, was nonetheless found to be pregnant. We immediately notice that Joseph, however, had a remarkable degree of character in that it was not his desire to make her a public spectacle, to call into character the nature of what she had done, for the evidence was already clear enough. 
She, however, we recognize, had not known a man in the sense of knowing Joseph, but yet she was pregnant. However, the angel, while Joseph thought on these things, in a dream, an angel shared with him the following piece of information. Don't fear to take Mary as thy wife, for what that which is in her is conception of the Holy Ghost. All of Joseph's fears, in fact, apparently were calmed. All of his concerns about her character, for after all, I'm sure his thoughts are what anyone else's would have been. She's pregnant, but yet she hasn't been with me. The angel reminded him that it's the Holy Spirit that's responsible for this conception. It is at that point in verses 20 and 21, we notice that in fact, she will bring forth a son and his name will be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What a very moving tribute and what a very moving consideration on this occasion. We find, in fact, in the words that the name of this child was to be Jesus. That word Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Here is a penultimate characteristic, this child that is to be born this one whose name will be Jesus, it means Jehovah is salvation. When we reflect upon the occurrence of that name and the significance of it here, we notice that the verse quickly moves then to tell us the following. In verse 21, He shall save His people from their sins. The birth of this child was going to be such a very different matter in the sense that His coming into the world will usher in a new epoch, a new age. This one, you see, will be a means by which salvation can be known. Think how many births throughout all the history of time had happened up until this one. Millions of them. And yet this one would be the one for which God was able to say, He... Speaking of that child, it is through him he shall save his people from their sins. It will be him that will provide a means for the forgiveness of sins. As you reflect upon that particular occurrence with me, you'll notice that then in verse number 22, we find that the inspired writer makes reference to an Old Testament prophecy. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. I would invite you to notice one of the elements of that degree of language. It says that this was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. I wonder on what occasion did the Old Testament foretell the occasion when of the Lord, of this child, that a prophet had something to say. Verse 23 concludes it by saying, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, or shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. As we come to the conclusion of that particular slide, might I remind us as we prepare to move to the next element or the next section of the lesson, that that verse number 23 does indicate such a happiness would associate to the birth of this child. After all, when I was born, I wasn't able to save people from sin, and the same is true of you. But when this child was born, God said He shall save His people from their sins. Is it any wonder then in Luke chapter 2, on the occasion when 
Joseph and Mary had gone to Bethlehem and it came to be there that the time for her delivery came to be the case. Wasn't it true on that occasion too that an angel had something to say? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We often think about that set of verses, I suppose, in December, when the time of Christmas approaches. But may we never forget how meaningful it should be, yea, at all times of the year. What joy and gladness ought there to be. For those of us who've placed our trust in the one whose name can cleanse us from sin. It is with those thoughts in mind that we perhaps should revisit not only that Old Testament passage, but to reflect on its appearance in this place. Please hold your finger here in Matthew and revisit with me Isaiah the seventh chapter. When we return to Isaiah 7, we find ourselves in the midst of a time hundreds of years prior to this occurrence in Matthew chapter 1 to perhaps set the stage just a bit. The prophet Isaiah labored around 750 B.C. And according to chapter 1, verse 1 of Isaiah, we learn that there were four kings during whose reigns Isaiah prophesied. Those kings, in fact, are listed on the particular slide before us. There was Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. All of that again from the opening verse of this noble prophetic book. When we give particular note to Ahaz, he was the 11th king of Judah, reigning from that period of time from 741 to 726 B.C. And it was during that time that the events of Isaiah 7 unfolded. We may now ask, what were those events? Here is some highlighted features of them that will in fact have much to say about verse 14. During this time in the reign of Ahaz, we remember that there were enemies to the nation of Judah, as there often were. Two particular enemies on this occasion were in the process of joining their forces and coming against Jerusalem. These two opposing kingdoms were Israel and Syria. Of course, their attack would be significant. As they joined their forces, the number of military people would be many. And needless to say, Ahaz, as king of, Jer of Jerusalem, king of Judah, was very concerned. However, as this chapter unfolds, God told Ahaz something remarkable. Their attack will not be successful. Their attack will not, in fact, result in the destruction of the kingdom of Judah. Rather... Through the power of God, you, Ahaz, will be able to stand, and you, in fact, will emerge victorious over the enemies. Think about what a note of encouragement that would have been. Here you are as king. You're responsible for the lives of hundreds of thousands of citizens. And God comes to you and says, This attack that you're going to face, it will not be successful. You're going to be victorious. I suppose Ahaz was very happy. I suppose he was, needless to say, rather joyful over such news. But it does remind us of what took place a bit later in the chapter. Beginning in verse number 10, it says, Moreover, the Lord spake unto Ahaz, saying... In essence, God had an additional message for Ahaz. Not only would you be victorious, here's some better news... Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. 
the God of heaven as an element in assurance apparently to Ahaz basically said this, Ahaz, ask of me a sign. You can ask anything you want. Ask of me a sign, Ahaz, as an attribute of comfort, assurance, and reliability that what I promised you will come to pass. You will be victorious over Syria and over Israel. In verse 12, Ahaz responds, Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Despite God's offer to Ahaz, Ahaz says, God, I won't ask anything. I will not ask a sign. We might be quick to say that that was a bit of an insult to God. When the God of heaven grants one the opportunity and grants one the blessing of asking of Him, one should do so with interest and with appreciation to the specialness of that opportunity. Verse number 13 says, And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? God somewhat rebuked Ahaz. You can weary men by asking of them, but you cannot weary God because He is infinite in power. He is able to bring about that which is His promise. And God here said, I have promised you a sign. And Ahaz, you did not ask me. You did not, in fact, grant yourself the opportunity of appreciating the marvelous blessing given to you. And so it is in verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Ahaz, because you have not asked, because you have had the nerve not to ask of me, I'm going to provide a sign, and this is it. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so it was in the days of the long distant past, seven and a half centuries prior to the actual birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah made known to Ahaz the marvelous words of God. Verse 14, The Lord Himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What a remarkable prophecy. As you can see near the bottom of that particular slide, it points us to its appearance as described in the words that follow. It might be well at this point to pause and to make this observation. I suppose there is no single passage anywhere in the book of Isaiah and arguably anywhere in the prophets that would be more controversial in the mind of some than the one that we have just read. After all, for those that in fact call into question the virgin birth of Christ, for those that would call into question His nature as Messiah, this would be the one verse that they would have to explain away. They would have to some way provide an explanation. How could a baby be born of a virgin? That's just not the natural way of human birth. It takes the joining of the forces of both a man and a woman to bring into the world in the natural course of things, a baby. How can one explain then the virgin birth of Jesus? Needless to say, there have been a number of supposed explanations. Many of them call into question the reference that we have just read. Was Mary actually a virgin? Many say she was merely a young woman. doesn't say, according to them, that she was a virgin. They, in essence, changed the very word in Isaiah 7, 14. Let us think a little bit about the appearance of that word. 
that word that is rendered the word virgin in that verse, Isaiah 7 verse 14, is that particular Hebrew word that occurs in a number of other places. And as we look at the references to it, we could refer to Genesis 24, 43. We could refer to more refer to Exodus 2 verse 8, as well as the Song of Solomon. Chapter 6 verse 8 is simply three occurrences. May we be quick to say that in every one of those occasions, we find the reference to a person, to a woman, that had not known a man in a sexual way. May we be quick to say that there is every grammatical reference and every reason to appreciate that that is exactly the way that you and I read it at first. It was referring to a young woman that had not known a man in a sexual way. God therefore said to Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign, and it's the sign that a baby will be born, but it'll be born to a woman that has known no man. Perhaps it's intriguing that this appears not to be the only Old Testament passage in which that particular promise was found. In Jeremiah 31, 22, we have another occasion in which a different prophet, this time it was God speaking through Isaiah, who, or rather through Jeremiah, who on that occasion said, A woman shall compass a man. In other words, she will go around the benefit of a man to bring into the world a conception. Seems to be another reference to what would be the occasion of the birth of our Savior. We notice that to Ahaz, God said, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. But that isn't all that was told. As you can see, that Old Testament prophecy, no doubt, would have been an extremely intriguing thing to Ahaz. The birth of one in a way like this? Clearly that didn't occur in the lifetime of Ahaz. But it was to be something that would be very powerful and profound and that would happen, of course, many years later. It is still said in verse 14, "...shall call His name Emmanuel." I would invite us for the next few moments and for the last section of the lesson, to think about this word, Emmanuel. It signified very much, did it not? Here was a case in the Old Testament when that very name, that very prescription was provided. The name to the baby, Emmanuel. Consider with me these thoughts. Much had been said in the Old Testament about the particular descriptive and the names that would come with this very special one. He would, of course, be the seed of woman, Genesis 3.15. He would, of course, be of the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22.18. He would occupy a particular and special role as the one officiating over the great kingdom of God, 2 Samuel chapter 7. All the while, though, notice that there's something very unique about this name, Emmanuel. Notice it means being interpreted God with us. The thoroughfare of God's salvation, the means by which this special one would come into the world that would save people from their sins would be God Himself. Although angels are special and mighty and powerful, this would be greater than any angel. Although others in the host of heaven, be they seraphim or otherwise, may be powerful and majestic and incredibly special, this would be greater than any of them. This one would be God Himself. When we then appreciate the birth of this one, 
What a special thing. Oddly enough, on television just very recently, my family and I, as we were looking at channels, upon one of them there was a Catholic presentation where such great emphasis was placed upon Mary as the mother of God. And furthermore, as Mary, various prayers were ushered unto her. Sad that they have mistaken her for what she brought forth. Sad that they've placed far too much emphasis on her as opposed to the greatness of the one she brought forth. She, in fact, had the privilege of, of course, being the one through whom the Holy Ghost brought that conception. But it was the one she brought forth that saves people from their sins, not her. And it's the one that she brought into the world that serves as the head of the church, not her. And it's, of course, the one that she brought into the world through His vicarious death on the cross and through the greatness of His sacrifice that allows men to be saved, not her. Notice some of these statements. God took the form of human flesh. Three members of the Godhead, but one of those members was born, of course, unto Mary, taking the form of human flesh. Didn't Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6 tell us, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." That passage is only one of several others, such as John chapter 1. In John chapter 1 we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. At that point, powerful isn't it, to reflect upon the Word, but then, 11 verses later in verse 14, we notice the Word became flesh. The same Word that had dwelt with God and that was God now became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh. Sometimes that word incarnation is used. God incarnated in the form of this one we call Jesus. The specialness and the truth exhibited in Him is a continual reflection on the special nature of His birth. Perhaps as we think of it that way, it's not that surprising. A supernatural being should be born in a supernatural way. Joseph was not his father. God was his father. He was God. Because of all those features, perhaps those closing thoughts are then apparent for us as we draw this lesson to its conclusion. Emmanuel meaning God with us. In Hebrews chapter 2, Verses 14 to 17, we have some comments about one aspect of His living in the flesh. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He Himself also likewise took part of the same, that He through death might destroy Him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And thus His existence in the flesh occupies for us a role that to Him we can turn because he exhibited the same temptations we do. He endured the same pains of body and mind that we do, and yet He emerged through them without ever sinning. No wonder we can turn to Him for encouragement. We can turn to Him as our prime example. Hebrews 2 verse 18. 
neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. As we then think about Emmanuel, meaning God with us, you'll notice that it allows us to conclude the lesson in the following way. The birth of Christ, coming into the world of this one known as Emmanuel, God with us. The human family had the privilege of witnessing Him in the flesh for some 33 years, observing His behavior, characterizing His mode of thinking and His love and His truthfulness, His faithfulness to the commands of God. And of course, for the centuries since then, all of that's been recorded for you and for me. It might be in the sound of my voice this morning, there's one or more in this audience that at this point has never given proper credence to Emmanuel, God, with us. Is He the master of your life? Have you given control of yourself to Him? If we could be of assistance to you today, the plan of salvation is as follows. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His majestic name as a Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you in that area today, what a great day for you and for us as well to witness such that would be. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, but at this moment in your life, things are not well with your soul, come back to your first love today. Come back to the one who is Emmanuel, God with us, for He wants to be, in fact, the sole Savior of your life. If we could help you in that way today, we'd pray with you and for you. We would simply ask you to let us know in the way we can do so. And that we would do that while together we sing and while we sing.